This podcast is made possible by Host Analytics and U.S. Bank. This is episode 310. The implementation of ASC 606, a new revenue recognition standard, that is, it's, it's a huge, huge, huge job. It's costing corporate America not tens of millions of dollars, but hundreds of millions of dollars. And um, an argument could be made that it's actually, in some ways, moving us back rather than forward. Decisions that were made in the tens and scores now will, uh, each quarter in terms of um, judgments on, on um, uh, what revenue uh, is to be recognized now have to be documented for literally thousands. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. This episode, we welcome back Barry Swarnstein, CFO of 5.9, a contact management cloud software developer. It's been nearly three years since uh, we last spoke with Barry. And what's on Barry's mind these days? Besides helping his company scale and drive growth, You may have just heard, ASC 606 is on Barry's mind, among other things. Fast fact, Barry Swarnstein built his career on three, or rather, let's say four different continents. This episode, we spoke to him a little bit about South America and Brazil, where he spent a good deal of time a decade or so ago. Our interview with Barry begins after these words from our sponsor. It's no secret finance professionals are dealing with some pretty complex problems these days. Now more than ever, they need tools that can help them streamline complex workflows and focus on bigger strategic issues. By bringing your finance organization together on a single cloud platform, Host Analytics automates everyday processes that would otherwise slow you down. By streamlining your planning, modeling, consolidation, reporting, and analytics, Host helps you connect your organization so you can react more quickly to changing conditions and make better business decisions to optimize performance. Let Host Analytics be your partner in leading the evolution of your business. So, hi, we're speaking with Barry Swarnstein, CFO of 5.9, a fast-growing developer of contact management software. Barry, welcome back. Glad to be back, Jack. Yeah, so it was about uh, nearly two years ago or so when we last spoke. Um, And at the time, uh, 5.9 was growing rather nicely. Uh, In fact, I think it was uh, something like six uh, consecutive years of growth, perhaps. We'd love to get an update and and find if you've been able to continue to grow the firm on such an ambitious path. Oh, absolutely. Um, The growth path has continued. We now have got uh, over eight years of um, uh, quarterly record revenue increases year over year. 
uh, and at the same time also quite uh, dramatic improvements in the bottom line. So we we're getting we're having our cake and eating it in a sense. Um, the um, improvement in the uh, bottom line uh, since we went public in April of 2014 is 34 percentage points. So quite impressive and. It derives all from our focus on the um, enterprise part of our market for the larger customers. It, um, that enterprise part of our business is now 70% of the total. Uh, five, six years ago, it was was zero. Uh, and uh, it's highly profitable. It enjoys a LTV to CAC ratio of some six times with a five-year cutoff. Uh, we actually enjoy a pretty good dollar-based retention rate on that above 100%. And so theoretically, we could go out longer, but um, we we truncated it five years, as I just said. Well, you emphasized a number of numbers there. And I recall last time you uh, quickly mentioned that the company experienced recurring revenues of something like 97%. And uh, is that still, are you still in that neighborhood? Yes. What I was referring to at that stage is that uh, and this is one of the characteristics of, uh, of a subscription model such as ours, in that um, we come into any given quarter with either 96 or 97 percent of the revenue for that quarter in uh, coming from customers that were there uh, at the end of the prior quarter. And when you combine that with two things, first of all, uh, the high retention rate, which is implicit in that 96 to 97 percent, and also with the fact that we we obviously bring in uh, new customers during the course of each quarter, have them go live and have previous customers ramp. Um, that gives us the type of growth that we've been enjoying. Yeah, I, I just want to 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 mention about that number. Have you uh, is that is that unusually high? Or when you and I know you're in the of course the cloud realm uh, where recurring revenues are watched closely. But uh, are there is is con- is there something about contact management software that that has created that or no? Is that uh, not uncommon for uh, other technology firms that you might compare notes with or watch uh, their no, results? No, I, I would definitely believe that uh, it's higher. Even certainly enterprise customers in general would enjoy um, uh, higher rates uh, because uh, enterprise inherently has higher retention, lower churn than does the commercial SMB business. But in our case, it's compounded, Jack, with the fact that we're talking about here that something's mission critical. It's the how, um, you know, for the benefit of our listeners who are not intimately familiar with 5.9, what we're doing is the cloud contact center infrastructure, the contact center infrastructure, um, which um, uses the information in the CRM system with which we're tightly integrated to in- intelligently route interactions to the best available skilled agent. And so we're talking about customer experience. And um, there's few things that are more mission critical to any enterprise than customer experience. And so um, uh, A, enterprise versus commercial enterprise is higher in terms of the uh, visibility and and, uh, income predictability. And B, mission critical uh, type um, uh, businesses such as ours is even more so. Uh, you, you know, it's tightly integrated with uh, the CRM system, as I mentioned, other systems as well, for example, workforce optimization. And all of those compound to result in the um, 
the high dollar-based retention rate of over 100%. Now, one of your things you mentioned, which I thought was really interesting, and I'd love to hear about if you've continued to uh, uh, develop this capability, you had mentioned uh, the margins of uh, uh, one-third of the business at the time related to voice, and I'll get this wrong and you can clarify it, (laughs) Uh, but you were talking about how you created a tiny department uh, to bring the pricing side and the cost side together to better understand profitability for that line of business. And uh, back in 2013, you had mentioned it wasn't getting the focus that it deserved, and and you created this sort of small department. And I just thought that was rather interesting. Uh, you again, it was tiny. I think you told me it was only two two people in the department at the time. But again, they were dedicated at at looking at this. And uh, is that something you you can share with us uh, to say whether you've taken a similar approach in other areas, or has this tiny department continued to play a role? Oh, that was a trip down memory lane, um, and I, I remember it vividly. And yes, what uh, your your numbers are right. Uh, it's about uh, 30% of our recurring revenue, which is 94% of our total revenue, the other 4, 6% being the uh, the one-time implementation. Um, that uh, 30% uh, is from uh, the usage uh, for telephony primarily, but also uh, d- uh, digital channels. Um, and uh, indeed, we um, we needed to bring the focus uh, between the uh, top line and the cost, the revenue and the costs uh, into into sharper clarity. Uh, you know, we're talking about over three and a half billion transactions per year. Uh, we needed to bring the attention from the, the uh, management attention to the uh, combination of revenue and cost to get those margins. It, it takes a lot of work. We're talking about over three and a half billion uh, interactions per year. And um, that department, uh, it's uh, three people uh, currently, uh, continues to add tremendous value. And we, of course, leverage technology. Uh, We use um, a value-based technology routing where we uh, pick between carriers, telephone carriers, to get the best quality, combination of quality and and, uh, cost. Um, We have not uh, had, a, a, frankly, a similar experience elsewhere where there's been, you know, a meaningful improvement. Uh, it's just been a matter of, that was an area where we could make a big difference and did. Barry, I'm curious as to whether you believe, and I have a hunch you do, uh, that you uh, can have a bigger impact on strategy as a SaaS, as a finance leader of a SaaS uh, company versus a finance leader of a of a, another industry or a d- different type of uh business model. Uh, but just the fact that you are today so customer centric, um, so much aware of revenue creation, um, one would think uh, this is a much more strategic role than in other organizations. Give us a point of comparison. How do you feel about being a finance leader of a SaaS company? Well, that you couldn't, I could not agree with you more. Um, uh, as, as a at the at the root of it, the finance function is a service organization to help our various departments um, acquire, implement, support our customers. And to do that, 
we need to provide um, information, not just data. And one of the salient characteristics of any SaaS model is the um, volume of uh, homogeneous uh, data that is simply just not there in many of the systems-oriented type companies. And that gives us a tremendous ability to provide uh, comprehensive, consistent, corporate-wide metrics uh, to support uh, other departments as they go about their business. Um, it, it allows for much better financial planning, better visibility, um, uh, predictability. Um, and so uh, I, I, I think your, your uh, observation is absolutely spot on. We're spending more time um, analyzing data rather than uh, gathering and trying to uh, torture the data to come out with some uh, conclusion. Okay. I want to talk to you about the economic climate. And again, uh, this would become a nice segue, perhaps, to uh, your experiences in different parts of the world. Um, I wonder what you make of the current climate. It's kind of hard to read, I guess. We're, we're having interesting political times uh, in different parts of the world, including our own world. But what, what concerns you most about the current economic climate? Well, uh, being a little bit uh, parochial, uh, I'm think of it in terms of uh, five nine, and um, we we have a sort of uh, microclimate, if you will, uh, with our um, being part of a transition from one business model to another. So an an inexorable trend away from premise to the cloud, and so. Um, we we find in a healthy environment uh, such as we have been and I believe continue to enjoy. Um, but uh, even if uh, the climate were to turn down and be negative, it may even frankly um, help a little bit in the sense that uh, we require a lower upfront cost uh, because you don't have to buy all the hardware upfront. Uh, and the staffing that goes with that hardware. And um, you also have more flexibility because it's much easier to go up and down with a, a cloud operation than it is with a, when you've got all that equipment owned by yourself. So um, we don't, with, through our customers, and uh, we don't see any signs at all of, of domestically, and that's where we focused, of any uh, major challenges uh, of any sort. Um, and we've got a pretty, you know, diverse customer base with over 2,000 customers. Um, and um, but again, if it was to, uh, there were to be headwinds um, in a macro sense, I believe it would, at worst, leave us neutral. Maybe even help us a little, but not that we would want that uh, more generally. Do you think your uh, finance mindset has helped? Uh... Uh, as you study the adoption of these types of technologies and the decision making that goes on in some of your enterprise client accounts in terms of buying decisions, um, finance is often involved in these decisions. Uh, I would I would think you'd agree. Um, and and uh, I, I'm curious as a finance leader, you might be better prepared than others to understand how. Uh, 
what's being weighed when these decisions are made. Do you feel as if you played a role there or, or maybe not? Is that left to your sales team and your marketing people and you try to stay out of those conference calls? Oh, um, so actually, um, it's, it's more on the sales side. Um, the one exception uh, would be um, in terms of doing uh, TCO analysis. However, um, in this um, in, uh, incredibly sophisticated economy that we enjoy, you can outsource pretty much everything. And so we've actually got a, a very outstanding firm that helps us with that. Um, so, um, the, and, and at the end of the day, the decisions that are being made uh, to uh, move to the cloud by our customers are not some that TCO can play a part in that decision and hence uh, finance be involved, but it's more a matter of wanting to modernize the contact center to make it less siloed, to embrace the omni-channel uh, solutions, including uh, various digital channels. Um, to um, better integrate with the CRM system and arm the agents with the right a information. So those types of things are, are more the natural domain of our go-to-market team. I want to talk about talent with you. And uh, frequently uh, when we speak to finance leaders, they talk about investing in, in sales head count, which sort of uh, is a direct line to more revenue often in certain organizations. But can you tell us how finance might uh, might help uh, inside the organization to arrive at uh, better hiring decisions throughout? Yeah. Um, so let me begin by uh, uh, talking about it very generally in the sense that um, it, it comes down to how well the company is doing and its prospects. And obviously we've talked about that and 590 is particularly well situated. Um, and it comes down also to culture and, and how that is um, starting with the CEO and going through the top management team, um, it permeates and is it real or not? And we're very, very happy with uh, our culture and uh, in which obviously the finance team um, as a service organization plays a, a pretty uh, uh, integral role, um, and um, it um, also is pretty important in terms of considering the tremendous cost of uh, finding, recruiting, training uh, new people is to uh, have the people stay on and have a low uh, voluntary attrition rate, which we uh, most emphatically enjoy. Um, so. In terms of the finance, uh, having a, um, a, a significantly different role uh, from the other organizations in developing that culture, um, not really. Uh, you know, we, we, we're part of a bigger team, and that's how it works out. Hey, how do you make a great hire? Um, well, the um, we put a lot of effort into it. Um, uh, the as I maybe mentioned a little bit earlier, um, just in the same way, it's much more profitable to keep an existing customer rather than having to bring on a new one. Uh, the same thing with a new employee. And we um, we put a lot of store into our recruiting process, um, and as uh, and it shows up in terms of, um, for example, in our glass door ratings. 
um, we are amongst the highest in in terms of our ecosystem, in terms of um, things like uh, whether or not you would recommend this as a to a friend. Um, our last rating there is, is a whopping 89%. And so um, we've got tools um, in terms of um, uh, preparing for interviews and um, uh, divvying up uh, focus areas depending on people's particular interests. Uh, we put a lot of effort into um, our HR department, more precisely, puts a lot of effort into getting uh, really good resumes in those areas where we hire through resumes. In some parts of the organization, we hire pretty much uh, exclusively um, people that have worked with other people in the past, and that's particularly in our sales area, um, less so maybe in finance, um, uh, although some as well. And we we consider this extremely important, um, and we've got an HR department um, helps us um, keep it um, consistent and, 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 and well-documented in terms of why the various people are recommending or not recommending somebody. And um, it's turning out pretty well. Barry, last time we uh, spoke with you, we went over a little bit about your career history and it uh, was rooted in uh, South Africa, but you, uh, you've done a great deal of travel to the Far East and uh, you spent some time in Turkey and Europe and uh, we didn't get a chance to touch on Brazil with you. Can you explain to us what uh, what brought you to Brazil and what were you up to at that point in your career? Brazil is a uh, a very special case. The, the famous um, saying is it's a country of the future and always will be. Um, however, um, I believe that out of the current very tough situation that they're going through in terms of uh, being in, I believe, the second year now of a recession, amongst the worst that they've had, and some of it is due to the broader commodities uh, downturn, uh, but also due to the uh, political turmoil uh, with the um, bribery scandals uh, with Petrobras. Um, I believe that Brazil um, is going to turn a corner and it's going to come out of this time, uh, come out of the uh, turmoil a much stronger uh, economy. Um, for one reason or another, um, my career has um, been um, pegged to Brazil. Uh, one of my first jobs was um, in food processing machinery, and Brazil uh, was a lead, uh, leading citrus juice extra, uh, uh, exporter, and we made the equipment to ex extract the juice. But there were multiple other um, industries such as um, medical ultrasound, um, coffee harvesters, um, the um, uh, local semiconductor, DRAM semiconductors, uh, local flash production, et cetera, um, NAND flash production. And so um, it is still somewhat of a statist economy. So that what you alluded to in terms of learning rules and so on is a very tough um, challenge there because uh, the labor code is, um, I don't know this for a fact, but it's, I think it's longer than the Bible. Uh, there's over 5,000 um, federal, state, and local um, uh, tax uh, laws. Um, 
some uh, that are extremely difficult to comprehend. There's a lot of import regulations because as a status economy is trying to uh, protect um, the local industries. And you're doing this all with um, people that are extremely motivated and bright and intelligent and want to do the right thing, but also with an infrastructure that has been woefully uh, underinvested. And so um, what you have to do is get very good advisors. Um, there, there are some really outstanding people within the various accounting and law firms. Um, you've got to uh, be extremely respectful of uh, their, um, their laws because they'll, they'll, they will come after you and you'll spend a lot of time and money doing it. So, um, the, and the laws need to be observed, not just in, um, in the letter, but in the spirit as well. And so, um, fortunately, the Brazilians uh, that I've worked, had the privilege of working with, have always been extremely willing to put in those extra hours and, um, uh, and, and display the professionalism and competence that can help you navigate that. Um, and um, I'll conclude with that. Yeah, there's nothing more. I, I, again, um, you mentioned your early days there. With that, if you didn't mention the company, Barry, could you tell us why as a CFO you had to travel there? I imagine it was an acquisition maybe, or what, why, why was that world suddenly part of your world? Oh, because um, at the, the very first time, which had caused the repeated uh, visits initially, but then they continued with other companies, uh, was that um, Brazil was overtaking Florida. This is going back quite a number of decades now. I'm, I'm, ashamed, I'm uh, reluctant to admit that it is. Uh, they were emerging and overtaking Florida as a citrus juice um, producer and exporter. And uh, in order to do that, you need equipment. And the company that I worked for at the time, FMC Corporation, um, had the dominant uh, capability with uh, with its technology for that uh, process. And so given how profitable that business was and given how difficult it was in those days um, with hyperinflation and multiple currency um, uh, changes, uh, Jack, it just needed on-hand, um, uh, on, on-site um, uh, 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 presence. That plus the fact that they have an excellent cocktail on there called a caipirinha made with cane sugar uh, with the two inducements. Well, I have one last, uh, actually, uh, before I get to my final question, Barry, I, I'm just curious because um, your background, again, you have technology companies, solid technology uh, resume for the last 10 years or so, but it's very diversified and it's very global. And you could have landed as CFO in, you know, any industry, would, and, and, and yet you're in Silicon Valley, really, or at least... Uh, uh, yeah, Pleasant in California. You're up there. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, you're in Silicon Valley, and frankly, the Silicon Valley resumes we look at are not nearly as interesting. They sort of have a steady, uh, you know, climb from one technology, often you know, uh, Bay Area company to the next. And uh, yet, um, I'm curious, what was it that that you know, you landed there and maybe for some of the reasons we talked about that, the cloud opportunity, the customer centric model, these are all things that maybe intrigued you, but anyway, or maybe it was happenstance, but, uh, did you expect to, uh, you know, to be at a, the helm of a, a Silicon Valley, uh, finance, 
organization at this point in time? Jack, no, I did not. It was happenstance or luck or perseverance or diligence or whatever. Um, I uh, was just extremely fortunate. Um, you know, my my family and myself were, were living in Brussels, Belgium at the time, uh, working for FMC and uh, very fortunately, Logitech, the Swiss company um, that was headquartered for operational purposes in, in Silicon Valley, wanted to go public and um, they um, were looking for somebody to help them do that. And I was fortunate enough to be picked. And um, so I was able to bring both the old world economy with many of the disciplines that come with that uh, in terms of um, um, product line profitabilities and and cost reduction and uh, focus on systems and um, global taxes and so on and um, apply that. And um, then I was fortunate enough to, to go on from there to different places. Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. We're about to ask Barry for his 12-month finance leader priorities, right after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middlemarket. Over the next 12 months, what are your priorities uh, as a finance leader? Yeah, so uh, working with the, with the CEO and the management team, top above all else is continuing our march to our intermediate term uh, model, the same model that we went public with uh, three odd years ago. Uh, now we're saying in approximately uh, two years because uh, it was five years when we said we went public um, that we were going to get to the uh, intermediate uh, our model, which is the same one as I just said. Um, and that's to get to uh, 20% plus EBITDA. Uh, we're very um, comforted by the fact that uh, the factors that have given us that 34% improvement I talked about earlier are persisting, and we've got two years to make up the remaining uh, 14% each point. Um, the, uh, on a more tactical basis, uh, the two things, and I'm sure you're going to uh, have heard this from other CFOs as well, uh, is uh, the implementation of ASC 606, a new revenue recognition standard. That is, it's, it's a huge, huge, huge job, uh, even with the benefit of, uh, of systems such as we have and, and so on, and even with the fact that we have, uh, compared with some other companies, because as a SaaS company, uh, we have less impact uh, from the adoption. It is a lot of work, and basically we have to gear up to do that. Um, decisions that were made in the tens and scores 
now each quarter in terms of um, judgments on on um, uh, what revenue uh, is to be recognized now have to be documented for literally thousands. Um, so, uh, and that's coming down the pike very fast because we um, will need to give some in the preliminary indications of the impact, uh, both on the revenue and the commission expense and disclosures and so on, when we report our third quarter results and have it fully implemented for the first quarter. So that's uh, that's front and center. And then um, less significantly, but still there, is that we're no longer a emerging growth company under the Jobs Act, and so we have to um, put in the formal SOX, the 404B uh, compliance steps and documentation, have that audited by our auditors, um, and that's that's the second thing. Thank you, Barry, and uh, thank you for uh, touching on revenue, Rick, uh, something we need to be talking uh, to uh, our thought leaders like you about. It's costing corporate America not tens of millions of dollars, but hundreds of millions of dollars, and um, an argument could be made that it's actually, in some ways, moving us back rather than forwards. Can, can I ask one more question regarding that? Did you form a task force, or how have you made certain it's getting the attention it is? And I'm sure there are lots of ways to do this, but it would be interesting to know. Right, right. And so uh, we've actually um, been very fortunate because we've got a, we've got a, a not a task force, it's headed up by somebody who's uh, passionately interested in this and, and very competent PwC alumni. And we've taken people in different parts of the organization, primarily in, in, in the, the, the revenue accounting part of the organization, and had them helping part-time. What I've done primarily is that um, because there's no slack allowed, because we have to report it, you can't, we can't be late in our filings, I've gotten the audit committee involved pretty early on. And so every single quarter now, for several quarters, we've been giving them our plans, our milestones. And um, it's gotten the visibility and therefore the support that uh, this needs. Barry Swornstein, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. You're welcome. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. It's Jack Sweeney with a quick note that CFO Thought Leader now has a quarterly print magazine. That's right, print. Each issue will profile 25 different CFOs. Let me repeat that, 25 CFOs. Other uh, print publications are lucky if they're able to bring you five CFOs per issue. What we understand is that you want to consume content in multiple ways. But wait a minute, there's something more here. We wanted this print magazine to be a podcast companion. So when you receive it, we want you to quickly thumb through it and maybe identify which episodes you have missed. We want you to dog ear those pages, as well as uh, perhaps the pages that feature CFOs from episodes you already listened to but found maybe a little extra value from. 12 months later, you will have a library of 100 CFO profiles highlighted 
with your insights or comments alongside the CFO thought leaders. Now, how much are we charging for this one-of-a-kind 100 CFO profile library? Annual subscriptions are $119. We think that's reasonable. We thought about it a little bit, but that's that's what we came up with. Uh, visit us and subscribe to CFO Thought Leader magazine at cfothoughtleader.com, where the future of finance is listening.